Good morning. My name is Pastor Doug Cooney. I'm one of the retired ministers here at the church, and uh, I get the privilege of bringing the message this morning. The standard is high. We have two excellent preachers, full-time staff members, between Pastor Ryan and Pastor Stu, so I hope I can measure up. I'll, I'll do my level best, but uh, I am grateful for their ministry and their preaching and very thankful for the opportunity to uh, share the message with you this morning. Before I do that, I want to spend a few moments in prayer with you. A number of years ago, uh, Linda and I were invited into a home to share an evening meal with a family who were not particularly churched, but they were aware of what I was and what we did, and uh, the hostess was kind enough to ask me if I would uh, ask the blessing of grace, and I said, certainly. So I prayed for the food and gave thanks, as pastors are wont to do, uh, and uh, then I said, Amen. And a little voice piped up from around the table saying, Almonds? I love almonds. <laughs> Not almonds. Amen. The word amen is an expression of assent or agreement. It's not something we tack on to the end of the prayer just sort of as a good luck symbol or something like that. It has deep meaning, and if you're new to Skyview, you will occasionally hear at Pastor Stewart's prompting particularly people saying amen, even me, and that's a big step for a fellow like me. I, you know, when I get blessed, I kind of go shoulder high. That's, I'm getting better, but you know, that's as blessed as I get. But I'm, I'm trying to learn and trying to loosen up a little bit. So for me to say amen in church is, is, uh, is a pretty big deal. But um, amen is an expression that means truly, so be it, yes, may it be, I agree. All of those things are wrapped up in that ancient word amen that is found in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and the New Bible. Uh, so this morning I want to briefly offer prayer at the start of my message, at the start of this year on this Epiphany Sunday. Um, a pastoral prayer, if you will, or as I tend to like to call them, the prayers of the people, because they're my opportunity to pray for all of you and hopefully wrap up and summarize some of the things that are on your hearts and in your world, in your lives. And uh, this morning I want to try something a little different. Don't be afraid. You won't have to stand up. Really, you won't. Uh, but a little bit different. So uh, I will end each of the brief prayers that I have with the words, in Jesus' name. Now, folks, humor me. What I want you to do, nice and loud, when you hear me say, in Jesus' name, is say, Amen. That's bitter. That's bitter. Okay, so uh, that's what we're going to do, all right? So here we go, all right? Big leap for some of you. That's okay. We can talk in church. Pastors do it all the time. Let's pray. On this first Sunday of 2024, we come with the words of a man named Charles Volkler who said and prayed, for all the possibilities ahead in this new year, make us thankful, O Lord. Give us wisdom, courage, discernment in the face of so much chaos, despair, and fear. Help us to see how, in our circumstances, we can contribute towards peace, faith, and love. And give us the will to translate our desires into actions in Jesus' name. Amen. On this Epiphany Sunday, as we turn our hearts towards the leading star and the wise men who came to worship the Christ child, we pray. O God, by the leading of a star, you manifested your only Son to the peoples of the earth. Lead us, who know you now by faith, 
to your holy presence that we may see your glory face to face in Jesus' name. And with an early church father named Anselm from the 11th century, God of love, whose compassion never fails, we bring before you the troubles and perils of people and nations, the sighing of prisoners and captives, the sorrows of the bereaved, the necessities of the weary, the failing powers of the aged. O Lord, draw near to each in Jesus' name. And finally, this day, we bring to you the needs of your church called Skyview and the people who compose this beautiful body of Christ. For each and every person and couple and family gathered here and with us online, oh God, we pray for your presence, your power, your peace, and your amazing and freely offered grace. Meet each one of us at our own point of need and receive from each humble and grateful heart our sincere thanksgiving in our help for worship, for we offer ourselves to you, our God, in Jesus' name. And now hear us, Lord, as we gather together our prayers and the prayer that Jesus taught us. Will you say with me, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well done. Well done. Thank you. I'm not sure if our prayer is going to come right now or not. Before we read the scriptures, we've already prayed. God knows we're serious about this. So listen, will you please, to the words from the Gospel of Mark on this Epiphany Sunday. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 through verse 13. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus is coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And at once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. The word of the Lord. And so this morning I have the privilege of beginning a new series that our pastor has wisely chosen 
a season for Epiphany series called Reveal. God is here, and God is indeed here. An event called an Epiphany involves a sudden moment of revelation or awareness. An event with a new insight bringing clarity, an event that often leaves us radically transformed and changed. We might call it an aha moment. Ever have one of those? Aha! Now I get it. That was like me in algebra. It happened once in about three years in high school when I said, aha, I think I get it. But I was never sure if I did. An epiphany. On the church calendar, which we follow here at Skyview, the liturgical calendar, to give it a fancy name, which is a, a, a listing of special days within Christendom and also of scriptures for those days. On the church calendar, we find that yesterday was Epiphany, the 6th of January. And then the Sunday following, which is today, becomes Epiphany Sunday. Following so closely on the celebration of Christmas and New Year's and the birth of Jesus and the celebration of a starting, a beginning of New Year's, Epiphany is a very appropriate way to begin together again. It's a call to reflect on what Christmas means. What does what happened really mean now? It's a call to consider prayerfully what God may wish to teach us and reveal to us in the coming year. We've celebrated the arrival of the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. We've sung the carols and we'll continue to sing them through the Christmas season, exchanged gifts <clears throat> and good wishes. We, have <clears throat> we also have collected a frog in our throat. Please excuse me, I'm going to channel Stuart. <clears throat> Try that again. <clears throat> Go away, frog. Where was I? I was doing so well. <laughs> oh, yeah, there I am. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. We've eaten too much and made New Year's resolutions about losing weight and getting in shape, which research shows, as I read this week, 90% of those resolutions never make it past the 15th of January. Not terribly encouraging. But now what? That's the question. Now what? So what? What lasting difference does Christmas, New Year's, Epiphany, our faith, make in our lives? What is the epiphany that we are seeking? What will be our aha moment this year? My title today comes from a book published in 1976, and yes, I like titles. I'm an old enough preacher that I like titles. I like three points, too, and if they alliterate, that's even better. But uh, anyhow, that's never, neither here nor there. But my title is, How Then Should We Live? And that comes from a really wonderful book written in 1976. I was 26 years old when that book appeared a long time ago. It was written by a man, a philosopher, historian named Francis A. Schaeffer, titled, How Should We Then Live? And Schaefer was reflecting on the declining state that he observed in the 20th century, that's last century, and in Western society. And he offered this solution. He said, the only hope for a Western society lies in living by the Christian ethic, fully accepting God's revelation, and affirming the morals and values and meaning of the Christian scriptures. 
not bad advice. So borrowing Schaefer's title, I'd ask you to consider, how should we then live? In the light of Christmas, in the light of our faith, in the light of our fellowship as Christians, how should we then live? The passage that we have read introduces Mark's gospel, my favorite gospel, by the way, partly because it's so nice and short and concise, but I really like Mark, partly because one of my very dear friends is a Markan scholar, and I wouldn't dare not like Mark for Dr. Kent Brower in the house. <laughs> Mark, I want to offer three suggestions, surprised, three suggestions to you this morning as followers of Jesus. How should we, how should you, how should I then live? The first comes from Mark, verses 1 through 3. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. The Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. How should we then live? We should live with hope and faith. At Christmas, we celebrate anew and afresh every year the physical coming of the God of creation and salvation in the person of Jesus Christ, the incarnation, the taking on of flesh, the tabernacling with us, says in one part of Scripture. God came and pitched his tent amongst us in the person of Jesus the Messiah, the long-promised Savior, Emmanuel, God with us, and God for us, I might add. Born of a young peasant woman from a nondescript Jewish village in the backwaters of a tiny nation called Israel. Born just like each of us is born, in pain, in blood, in water, in fear perhaps, for Mary was a young woman who had never had a baby before, as Martin Luther said. At Epiphany, we remember the Gentile astrologers, wise men from the East, Magi, who came to find and worship the one who had been promised from ancient times and who, in their study of the heavens, they had seen a special star, took that as a sign that the Messiah or the king had been born and followed the star. From the earliest <clears throat> recorded times of Jewish history, from times of slavery in Egypt, from times of exile and slavery in Babylon, the Jewish prophets had foretold and the Jewish people had waited for the promised one to come and set them free. As Moses had done in Israel, or in Egypt, pardon me, leading them through the Exodus, there was the promise of another, a new Exodus. And in Bethlehem and Judea, at the time of Herod the king, the hopes and fears of all those years were met in him that night. But he was not recognized by many. A few mangy shepherds of the lowest social strata, they didn't smell good, they didn't look good, nobody liked them, and you certainly didn't trust them. The only friends they had were each other and their sheep. Who heard a heavenly message and then later, probably up to two or three years later, <clears throat> some Gentile astronomers who weren't even Jewish showed up. We say there's three, but it doesn't really tell us that. 
There were three gifts, and so we assumed there were three. But there might have been one, there might have been six, there could have been a dozen. We don't know, it doesn't matter at all. But the fact of the matter was that they were Gentiles from afar who came seeking the king. And later this baby grew to become the young rabbi, again from the backwaters of Israel, named Jesus, who was executed by those in power and rose again from the grave, defeating death once and for all, bringing to pass a new exodus, freeing those who had placed their faith in him from sin and death, as Paul teaches in Romans. For those who are in Christ are free indeed. How should we then live? We should live with hope and faith, for we serve a risen Savior who is in the world today. I'd like to challenge you and encourage you to live the year ahead. In the epiphany hope that Jesus who came still comes to hearts that are open to him. Those who would place their faith in him. How should we then live? We should live in faithful hope and obedience to the one who came to be the light of the world. Amid hope amid a world that seems out of control. I am almost at the point in my journey of not wanting to watch the news any longer, though I must. I'm sort of, it's like watching a train wreck sometimes. But in a world that seems out of control, a world that seems in chaos and day to day seems more and more troubled and more and more violent, it makes me more and more sad. But can we live in the hope that there is a God over all whose time is not our time? I can't explain that. But a God whom we can trust and place our faith and our hope in. One who dwells amongst us and dwells in us. How then should we live? With faith and with hope. Secondly, we should live with humility. Verses 4 through 10. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Anybody here have weird relatives? Are you somebody's weird relative? Think about that. John was a strange dude. He was Jesus' second cousin. He was the child of Mary's aunt, Elizabeth. He was Mary's nephew. And I've got to confess to you, I think he was kind of weird. He lived in the desert. In a society where the water was so bad you drank wine, he never drank wine. He wore camel hair. Now, I don't know, I've never been a camel, but I'm assuming camels are kind of scratchy. And he wore camel hair with a leather belt around his waist. Well, okay, I can do that. 
and he ate locusts and wild honey. We were out for dinner on New Year's Eve, and we had something a lot better than locusts and wild honey, praise be to God. <laughs> John was weird, but John was wonderful. Because John was a God child, a gift of God to Elizabeth and Zechariah in their old age, his parents. And he was a second cousin of Jesus, and he was the forerunner of the Messiah. So be careful when you read off those weird relatives. Who knows? John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, the second cousin of Jesus, called the Christ. John, the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth, who was Mary's aunt. The miracle baby, born by the promise of an angel to an elderly priest and his equally elderly wife. The baby, which we are told, leapt in his mother's womb when he heard the voice of Mary, the mother of Jesus, praising God. John, a strange and eccentric individual, whom, we are told in Luke's gospel record, will be a joy and a delight to you, Zechariah and Elizabeth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and is never to take wine or other from men to drink, and will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. He appeared from the wilderness like a tornado. Or a hurricane, I think. Preaching and baptizing, talking about one who would follow him who was so great that John wasn't even worthy to do a slave's task, to untie his sandals, to, to wash his feet, if you will. This, 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 this person, this Messiah, whom John was not able to wash the feet of or untie the sandals of, is the same Jesus, the Messiah, who washed the feet of his disciples and said to us, go and do likewise. He appeared from the wilderness where he lived and preached, baptizing and talking about one who would follow. And what we learn here, I believe, is the lesson of service and humility. John was fully aware of and at peace with his position. How many of us can say that? Contentment with godliness. It's a great gift. John knew who he was. He knew what his task was. He knew his position and his place, and he was okay with that. In the great plan of God, he was prepared to serve, to be humble. No eagle trips for John. He didn't appear driving a Rolls Royce. He wasn't wearing a suit or a jacket and tie. He appeared from the wilderness, probably dirty and dusty, perhaps a bit smelly. Preaching the gospel, pointing people to Jesus. And thus John could free his own disciples to follow Jesus because in his humility, he knew they weren't his anyways. It says in John's gospel, not John the baptizer, but another John, the next day John was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. And when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus he set his own followers free. He wasn't building a kingdom. He was building the kingdom, the kingdom of God. True love, true humility. John knew who he was. Do you know who you are? Think about that. Are you okay with that? I think I'm okay with who I am. 
hope I am. I'm trying to be. He was fully committed to the point of death to do what God had called him to do, which was to point people to the Messiah. To prepare the way for the Lord who's coming in the person of Jesus. Let you, I'll let you know my pastoral secret. Um, over the years of my ministry, I served in five churches. Okay? And when I left each church, thankfully, some people had come to know Jesus under my ministry. Some people like me. Some people, eh, not so much. Uh, that's okay. But I rejoiced when the pastors who followed me saw growth or increase and celebrated that. That's what John was doing. If you will, John was a cheerleader for Jesus. Yay, Jesus! That's a bit sacrilegious. No, not really. He was pointing people to the one, to the Messiah. John knew who he was and he was okay with that. Know who you are and be okay with that. Be okay with that. And I'll tell you why in just a minute, in my last point. In a world that shouts accolades to the famous and the wealthy, a world that all too often worships at the altar of selfishness and greed, a world where it is all too easy to fall into the trap and where might makes right, God is seeking humble people. Humble, not weak. Isn't it a shame that meekness sounds like weakness? Because true meekness and humility is anything but weak. There is more strength in meekness and servanthood than there is perhaps in the might that many people show. Meekness is not weakness. For all you introverts, remember that. Okay? How should we then live if we would follow Jesus? With humility. But a humility seen in John the Baptist's life who knew who he was and knew who Jesus was and rejoiced in his privilege of pointing people to the Christ, to the Messiah. At one point it says, I believe, that I must grow less while he grows greater. Finally, and all God's people said amen, we should live then with confidence. This is my favorite part. I could have, well, maybe I should have. I could have just preached this, this point and had it all done one. But I love this part. Verses 9 through 11. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and a spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Do you ever wonder why we always give God a bass voice? If the sound system was, was sort of working, when I said that, there should have been echo. <laughs> Maybe God has a tenor voice. Maybe God has a woman's voice. Maybe God whispers. I don't know. But a voice, we are told, came from heaven. And said, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. My dad died when I was 15. That's almost, <laughs> almost 60 years ago. Do the math. 
My dad was born in 1898. I always thought that was pretty cool. He was born in the 1800s. But he was a child of his generation and a child of his family, and he was not a man who wore his heart on his sleeve. I know my dad loved me, but he never, ever was able to say it. And as a seven, almost 74-year-old retired pastor, there are still times when I ask myself and think, I wonder if dad would be happy with what I'm doing, if he'd be proud of me, if he would like what I've become, if he would love the woman I love as much as I do, if he would love my kids and my grandkids as much as I do. I think he would. But sometimes a voice would be nice. I'm not hearing voices, don't worry. This is the most wonderful and liberating principle of the three. And though pastors should never say this, if you don't remember anything else I've said, please remember this. Please, 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 please remember this. I believe that every human child, sort of like me, longs to hear his or her earthly parents tell them that they are loved and valued and approved of. Not everybody gets that privilege for many different reasons. And though some need more approval and assurance than others, whether their child is 3 or 23 or 53 or 73. Well, parents probably, yeah. Anyways, I think that all long to have the approval and love of their parent. Some build hard shells of defensiveness around themselves. Some get bitter and filled with anger. Others spend their lives searching for and longing for words that will never be spoken and never will be. But here is an epiphany for you today. Here is a surprise. Here is an aha that I want you to remember. A sudden moment of revelation. Clarity that can transform your life and set you free. In obedience, Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River. There's a whole other series of messages and sermons on why Jesus needed to be baptized or why he was baptized. We're not going to go there this morning. An interesting theological pursuit. But he was baptized in the Jordan River by his second cousin, John. In order to identify with those he came to save, to give visible testimony to his total and complete humanness, I would suggest, the sinless one, the Messiah, was baptized. And when we are told that a unique and miraculous affirmation was heard, a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. If you're a woman, girl this morning, which your gender in there, you are my daughter. I must wonder if Jesus did not recall and remember that voice as the next three years unfolded, as the resistance increased and the anger of those he came to seek, culminating on the cross. If Jesus didn't remember that voice, you are my son and I am well pleased with you. Jesus knew he was doing his father's will, that he was about his father's business. But still he must have felt alone and isolated at times, and the remembrance of his father's voice must have brought him comfort. One of the images of the life of the Christ follower, the Christian, is that of adopted child of God, of having a heavenly father like the father of the prodigal son who longs and seeks and calls us home, who runs to meet us when we come to him. 
If you are a believer today, you are an adopted child of God. God is your father. Think about that. Chew on that a little bit. Rejoice in that. Think about that. I hope, though I know it probably isn't the case, that all of you had wonderful, loving fathers and mothers and grew up in homes filled with joy and peace and happiness. I know life isn't like that. If you did rejoice, if you didn't, try to forgive. And realize now that you are a child of God. You have a Father who loves you absolutely unreservedly. The Father asks only that you follow Him. That you be faithful to Him. And even when you are faithless, He still loves you. Do you not long to one day hear your Father who is in heaven say to you the words found in Jesus' teaching about the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25? His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things, humility. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your reward. Live with faith and hope because you're a child of God. Live with humility because you're a child of the great and awesome God. Live with confidence because God knows your name. God knows who you are. And God loves you unreservedly. Listen. Can you hear the voice? Your father's voice. In the book of Revelation, there's an image of God who stands at the door of our lives and knocks, wanting to come in, waiting for us to open the door and welcome him. Listen, as the worship team comes, listen to different offerings of the words of your heavenly father. You are my child whom I love. With you I am well pleased, it says in the NIV, New International Version. You are my dearly loved child and you bring me great joy, says the New Living Translation. You are my child and my beloved. With you I am well pleased, New Revised Standard. You are my child, chosen and marked by my love, pride of my life, the message. You are my child, my beloved one, and I am very pleased with you. A version called The Voice. Listen. Listen today. Listen throughout this coming year for the voice of your father saying you are loved. You are accepted. You are valued. You are important. Listen for the voice of the Father who is more loving and more understanding than any earthly father could ever be. And as you live lives of hope and love built firmly on the foundation of faith in God and humble service to others, I invite you to imagine God's voice speaking to you in the version according to Cooney. You are my much-loved child, and I am thrilled to death with you and glad that you are mine.
I love you more than you can imagine, and I will never, 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 never leave you. And all God's people said,